What is this thing called postmodernism? Is it a threat to Christianity? And can Christians learn from postmodern thinkers and their critique of modernism? Hello, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and joining me today is Dr. Crystal Downing, co-director of the Marion E. Wade Center and co-holder of the Marion E. Wade Chair in Christian Thought at Wheaton College in Illinois and the States. And I'm also joined as often by my co-host Ian Reid Rideau from King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North in New Zealand. And our subject, as you've already gathered, is postmodernism. Is it a threat or can we embrace it or embrace parts of it? So Crystal and Rideau, hi, welcome to the show. Hello. Glad to be here. Oh, it's, gra- it's great to have you back. Uh, Crystal, the last time you and I met was to discuss Dorothy L. Sayers. An, an opening question, which I hadn't prepared, has just come into my head. I wonder what Dorothy L. Sayers would have made of postmodernism. Oh, she would have loved it. <laughs> In fact, my very first book was on Dorothy Sayers. It's called Writing Performances, The Stages of Dorothy L. Sayers. And part of that book. And it's a typical first book by a fresh PhD in that I'm trying to prove how, what facility I have with all the great theorists. And so I I don't recommend it to anybody anymore. Um, it's, It's just hard to get through. But I still think it won an international award because I was showing an aspect of Dorothy Sayers that nobody else had really picked up on that um, how she parallels many of the great great postmodern theorists. So studying her at the Wade, and this was long before I was director of the Wade, and just to fill in, the Wade um, is the most um, comprehensive archive in the world for published and unpublished materials by and about C.S. Lewis and six of his influencers one of whom is Dorothy Sayers. And so we actually have more things by Dorothy Sayers than any place else in the world. So it's a great place to study Sayers. And then after writing that book, I realized, oh, I need to make postmodern theory more understandable to lay audiences. So the the first book was a very scholarly monograph. It was an academic book. So my second book, inspired by Sayers, and I quote Sayers in the book, I quote C.S. Lewis in the book to show how C.S. Lewis would have welcomed postmodernism as well as Dorothy Sayers. And Sayers, Lewis counts Sayers as one of the most important influences on his spiritual life. So I wrote a book called How Postmodernism Serves My Faith. And basically, I'm arguing that postmodernism is the best thing that happened to Christianity in 300 years. So that shows you what I think, uh, how positively I think about postmodernism. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't negative aspects of it. And partly because there are people who will pick up on certain elements and make them simplistic. And that that is the general assumption people have about postmodernism, they aren't reading the real scholarly theorists that developed it. And my husband thinks I'm a masochist because I read all these scholarly theorists who are um, just, many of them have been interpreted from the French and it's already sophisticated theory. But anyway, but I'm fascinated 
buy it. And when I marketed this book called, how, actually my original title was How Postmodernism Saves My Faith. And my editor, and it's published by InterVarsity Press. It so is. that's an evangelical publisher. Mm, mm. So it, it shows that I am, what I'm doing is I'm making very clear that I am functioning within Christian orthodoxy or else InterVarsity would not have published it. But I'm just helping Christians committed to orthodox doctrine understand how postmodernism supports their commitment to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why have so many of us responded to postmodernism as a sort of bogey person or bogeyman, as a threat? Because of incompetent communication of what it's really about. And there are, okay, let me give an example. I consider very disturbing a certain aspect of Christianity that's known as prosperity theology, the health and wealth gospel, where these Christians use the Bible to basically say that, well, you know, if you pray enough and if you go to church and you do the right thing, God is going to bless you financially. That is, uh, how can anybody read the New Testament and come to that conclusion and I considered a warping of Christianity, and yet there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who buy into that. Well, the same thing happens in postmodern theory. There's people who will take a certain element, and like I can see how you can get this idea that, oh, only if you fulfill the law and you pray, I mean, uh, yeah, pray and constantly honor and praise God. By reading the testimony, the Old Testament, you would get that sense that, oh my goodness, you know, if I want God's blessing, I have to do all this. And then Jesus Christ comes along and totally subverts that. And it's no coincidence, my second book on Sayers is called Subversive because she's following the example of Jesus. So Jesus is, oh man, this is so complicated. Jesus is totally redefining what religion is about. And that's what got him killed, right? So there are these people, the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, who knew we have the truth. We have objective truth. And Jesus comes along and says, maybe, yes, uh, the, God is there. God is a, an objective reality, but maybe the way you're seeing God is problematic. Just like health and wealth gospel Christians, they believe in God, they believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the, the way they see it is problematic. So if this happens in Christianity, where there's pr problematic assumptions, and so many people are attracted to health and wealth gospel because it just makes it so easy so simple. And I think those who have simplified postmodernism, it just makes it seem, oh, um, it's just everything is relative. That's not what postmodern theorists say. In fact, no intelligent person says everything is relative because that is um, the it commits the self-exempting fallacy in philosophy. If you say everything is relative, you're saying everything's relative except that statement that everything is relative. So you are undermining your own assumptions. 
What I just did there is an example of postmodern theory that is called deconstruction. And it was ignited by a famous philosopher named Jacques Derrida, who shows how often the way we philosophize, the language we use can undermine the, our very philosophical statements. And postmodernism is really about the power of language. And so I, in my book, talk about the power and poverty, poverty of language in order to do that. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and, and Rita, you can uh, come in here too. Uh, do, do the postmodern thinkers actually deny absolute truth claims or even truth claims? They don't. In fact, two of the most famous postmodern philosophers, and I'm talking about the sophisticated level of postmodernism the same way when I talk about Christianity, I am talking about the orthodoxy that was established at the first four ecumenical councils. So with postmodernism, I'm talking about the really powerful, scholarly, philosophical um, thinkers who ignited postmodern theory, not the simplistic, oh, everything's relative, um, which is not what they were saying. In fact, no. okay, here, here is a funny thing, is that both Jacques Derrida, who ignited deconstruction, and Michel Foucault, who ignited um, much of the conversation about the cultural construction of knowledge, they were accused and were not at first accepted by secular scholars because they were accused of being too conservative. Because both Derrida and Foucault were developing a philosophy that legitimized belief in Christianity. So what I have to do, what I have to show in my book, how postmodernism serves my faith, when I started to talk about the fact that I had originally titled it, How Postmodernism Saves My Faith, and my editor at InterVarsity said, well, did it really save your faith? And I had to realize, no, it's not like I was saying, I was sinking deep in sin and then I read Foucault, you know? <laughs> um, so he said, um, let's change it from saves your faith to serves your faith, which is, it was a smart decision. And luckily I had this brilliant editor who has since become a friend of mine, has a PhD in theology. And my PhD is in English. So he really helped me work through these things a lot. So anyway, in a, to understand postmodernism, you have to understand what it's reacting to. And what postmodernism is reacting to is modernism. So half my book is about modernism because you can't understand postmodernism without understanding modernism. And that's why both C.S. Lewis and Dorothy Sayers would have loved postmodernism. Um, and it really developed after they had died, not long. It developed only about five or six years after both of them died. It developed in the 1960s. Now, Lewis didn't like modernism, did he, at all? Oh, he hated, he hated it. Modernism. That's why he yeah. would have welcomed mm. postmodernism mm. because it was postmodern theorists were talking about the deficiencies of modernism. So Lewis is the abolition of man. He is, and you know, and he, he is criticized. Well, a lot of his um, work is criticizing the, the modernist discourse of his day. And basically modernism is this idea that humanity is progressing, is evolving to greater and greater intellectual sophistication. And 
Hence, Christianity is an outworn, superstitious um, system of the past. We have evolved beyond the need for Christianity. And they, then these postmodern theorists come along, like Michel Foucault, he, he wrote a book called The Archaeology of Knowledge, and he totally undermines the idea of progressive intellectual advance. And he actually says, you know, there are some cultures like medieval culture that were more intellectually advanced than cultures that were to follow. And of course, medieval Western culture, what is the overarching paradigm of medieval Western culture? Christianity. This is why he was accused of being conservative because he said the medieval thought could be more profound than other thoughts. C.S. Lewis, uh, yeah. oh, uh, yes. Lewis would certainly have agreed with that. C.S. Lewis would certainly have agreed with that. Yes, mm. yes, of course he would. Part of, uh, so what I do then is I trace um, another key element of modernism is the idea of radical autonomy so that especially people of genius can rise above culture and think on their own. And you get the autonomy in both art and science. And of course, it was the development of Darwinian evolution that helped feed this. And in, in certain of his texts, C.S. Lewis endorses evolution. He just believes it's theistic evolution, that, that God started the whole process. But you get the emphasis on modernist autonomy um, that developed in the Enlightenment, that reason is all you need. And it starts really with Descartes. I think, therefore I am. And I wish, well, in later books, I emphasize this more. As, as I was looking over my book now, I realized that a lot of the problem with modernism is it's Gnostic. It's all about the knowledge you have. It has nothing to do with your enfleshment or to use the, the theological term, incarnation. Christianity is about incarnation. God endorses the flesh. And some religions are appalled by the, the incarnation. How could God actually take on flesh? Um, even early Christians denied the idea of incarnation. So there's the famous bishop, a lover of Jesus Christ, Marcion, who refused to endorse the incarnation. Because why? Because the flesh is filled with excrement. God would never mm. allow God's self to be filled with excrement. And so there developed an early heresy in the church is known as docetism, where Jesus only seemed to be flesh. And God just kind of put on the appearances of flesh. So God endorses the flesh. And this is why we needed the ecumenical councils. They determined that was a heresy. Council of Nicaea decided in 325 that Jesus was both fully God and fully man simultaneously. And that also anticipates what Derrida does with deconstruction. But I, I can wait and get that to that later. So anyway, modernism is very Gnostic. Uh, the idea that there are especially 
um, certain pe persons of genius who just operate on their own and they see things better than we can. And modernist artists produce great works of art. And of course, abstract expressionism is modernist because only uh, pea brains would need art to be representational. You, you know, this is the artist's vision. And there was kind of a contempt for the masses who didn't, who only thought art should be representational. So even the art is autonomous. It doesn't relate to anything but the expression of the artist, him or herself. And um, then the same in the sciences. Reason is all we need and empiricism is all we need. So the great scientists just apply their reason to empirical fact, that's truth. If you can't prove it, it's not truth. And they're, um, at the height of modernism, you get something called logical positivism. And that's what Lewis is really rebelling against in the abolition of man. And the irony is the logical positivists. I mean, it was a very short-lived assumption because they applied it to language. Well, only language that refers to empirically verifiable phenomenon can can be considered true. And it just was so limited. Wittgenstein was an early logical positivist and then he rejected it later. A.J. Eyre was an early logical positivist, he rejected it later. So even the, the promulgators of it saw its limitations. So postmodernism saw the limitations as well. And to go back to the incarnation, postmodern modernism asserts that the flesh is important insofar as our enfleshment affects the way we understand truth. There's still objective truth out there, but we see it differently depending on what postmodern theorists call our situatedness. Some people call it our positionality. And this is, it's true within Christianity itself. Depending on um, how you are situated, you are going to understand, this is my body broken for you, take, eat. Roman Catholics understand that differently than Protestants do. It's the same truth. They honor the same Jesus Christ, but they understand it differently. So there is pluralism of interpretation within Christianity itself. So people who say, oh, the trouble with postmodernism, it's just, it's about pluralism of perceptions. You know, Christianity is about pluralism of perceptions, right? So, well, we could go in so many different directions. So this, this emphasis on enfleshment, positionality, how I help my readers understand is I have them imagine a, a huge football field that is filled with clear plexiglass towers. And I say, okay, imagine yourself shrunk down into one of these towers. And each of these towers is surrounded with the language of the, the race, ethnicity, country, time in which you grew up. You are, but beyond all these little plexiglass towers in which we are positioned, there is still absolute truth above them. It's just that we look at that absolute objective truth 
through different screens of language. And, and, you know, Christianity just proves this perfectly. This has been true throughout the, the, truth, the history of Christianity. A good example is the Roman Catholic Tower of Understanding celebrated in, um, indulgences. And of course, Martin Luther, he comes along and says, no, we got to get rid of indulgences. You know, he nailed his theses to Wittenberg door against indulgences. Well, what had happened, and then that developed, of course, into Protestantism, it actually, and Martin Luther wasn't planning to do this. Martin Luther was deconstructing problematic language. It's about language. Postmodernism is about language problematic language within the Roman Catholic Church. And what had happened to the beautiful idea of indulgences, basically the indulgent means that that is just a word for grace. God indulges us by offering us the gift of salvation. But then it started turning into something you have to earn. And so, you know, you have to go through certain rituals, you have to kiss a reliquary or make a, a, a trip to a, a sacred site. And then when the printing press was invented, there were uh, entrepreneurs who were actually selling indulgent pa indulgence papers so you could buy God's grace, which kind of totally undermines the whole thing. So language then starts, people start becoming, uh, making idols of the language itself by which they understand absolute truth. And they get more obsessed with the language than trying to understand truth itself. And this incident I talked about with Dorothy Sayers, but it's, this is, she's the one who really got me seeing this when she wrote these radio plays about the life uh, of Jesus, in which she honors the miracles, shows Jesus's death and resurrection. Christians protested all over England, demanding censorship because she didn't use King James English. So all these Christians were in this tower where they were looking at truth through this, this language of King James, and only that can be Christianity. And they wanted to squelch any different language. So they were more obsessed with the language than they were with the truth beyond it. And so postmodernism is drawing our attention to how do we idolize language itself? How does language, or the fancy term is our discursive practices, affect the way we understand reality? I came to this realization when I started working at an Anabaptist college and if I hadn't gone to this Anabaptist college, I'm not sure I would have written this postmodernism book because it was my first, I, I grew up a fundagelical. I went to a fundagelical college and um, my, I, my faith, I was never really forced to grapple with why do I believe what I believe? Well, this is, this is the truth and this is what we all believe. And then I go to an Anabaptist college and of course the Anabaptists, that's the tradition from which Amish and Mennonites come. So they're radical pacifists. And so this was a new way of thinking for me. They really emphasize orthopraxis as much as orthodoxy and a, 
um, profound moment for me was sitting in chapel my first semester teaching at this new college, a recent PhD. Um, and one of my colleagues was talking about a Mennonite man of God was asked, are you a Christian? And I was sitting there thinking, here's how I've been trained to answer that question. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was eight years old and I was born again. Case closed. There it is. The language tells it all. I'm going to heaven. And um, the men, so I continue listening in the Mennonite man of God um, answers the question, are you a Christian with ask my neighbor? And I nearly fell off my chair. It was just, and, and of course I go, isn't that what it's about? If my neighbor doesn't even see any difference in my life, that, that Christianity, my Christianity displays the love of Christ. I had reduced my Christianity to personal fire insurance. Say the right words. You get salvation in response. So it, it was a type of idolatry of language. Now, going back to these, these clear tubes on the football field in which we're embedded, that is kind of what the co means by the cultural construction of language, that we're all seeing things through those tubes. And what Derrida wants us to do inside the towers, he, he talks about the necessary play of language. And that, that's one of the ways that people totally misunderstood Derrida and they turned it into, oh, postmodernism is just playing around with language. You know, I just can um, invent whatever truth I want. Uh, that's not what they're saying at all. What Derrida meant by the play of language is that it's like, the language in our towers, like this King James language or whatever it is, it's like they're on little um, pieces of clear tape. And Derrida tells us, okay, what I want you to, what we need to do is kind of push aside that language and look through our tower to an adjacent tower. How do they talk about this? Which is exactly what happened to me when I heard about this Mennonite man of God answered the question, are you a Christian? Ask my neighbor. That's a totally different language than, than I had been given to answer that question with. And it profoundly influenced my faith. So I suddenly realized that I had grown up and I, I, I grew up because as a evangelical, believing all Roman Catholics were going to hell basically because they didn't use the same language. They believed transubstantiation, you know, all this stuff. So Luther himself, and for good reason, how indulgences had just turned into this quid pro quo element of faith. But the trouble is to, to just totally um, reject it altogether is making no attempt to understand their language. And now, some of the most profoundly Christ-like Christians I know are Roman Catholics. But I had to play, I had to move aside my fundagelical language from the tower I grew up in, in order to try to understand. And uh, what's interesting about Derrida, he defined deconstruction as openness to the other. We're going to have to wrap up. Uh, we're just oh, about already? To, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, already, I know. I mean, uh, me it's, I've got three minutes left on this call. Okay. Uh, and one presumes that's objective truth being stated. But anyway, you wouldn't know. <laughs> but Rito, quickly, just quickly as we close, your thoughts, questions. Uh, yes. But about three minutes, brother. I think that's really helpful. No, that's really, that's really helpful, isn't it, to think through 
particularly how those early kind of postmoderns, I think looking at the way that we define postmodernism, we'd be shocked at, at that. One of the things that I think is interesting is that I hear a lot of Christians talking about deconstruction at the moment and others being quite scared of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I think it's a really helpful thing that we need, we need to push into it in a way uh, that we push into our doubts and are willing to kind of question and willing to kind of think through those things deeply. But the question is also, how do you then do reconstruction? How do you end up back at Orthodox Christianity? Because those people who have done the deconstruction and ended up back up at, at Orthodox Christianity have such a deeper and richer faith. Uh, but how do we uh, kind of encourage and help that yeah. process, I guess, is my question. I think that's question. probably the subject for another interview. So, Dr. Crystal Downing, thank you so much. Co-director of the Marion E. Wade Centre and co-holder of the Marion E. Wade Chair in Christian Thought at Wheaton College in Illinois in the States. And her book, indeed, How Postmodernism Serves My Faith, Questioning Truth in Language, Philosophy and Art, is published by IVP America. And as always, Crystal, we didn't have enough time. It was fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.